Hello and welcome. I'm Steve Bianchi and I'm here with Johnny Birch and welcome to the Progression Podcast. Hi and welcome to another episode of the Progression Podcast. This week I'm chatting to Steve Bianchi, CHRO and COO of Talent Operating System Beamery. He's a real futurist and systems thinker so we get into the future of the people team, why people leaders make good chief operating officers and as Steve imagines a future where we're hired not based on our university and CV, but by our skills and ambition. Really interesting conversation, very macro and sort of exciting to imagine. So I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the podcast, Steve. You are one of the first few people with people or HR in your title to have actually been on this podcast. And... Um, you're doing fantastic work. So I'll introduce you very briefly and then you can do a much better introduction after. You are um, CHRO and now COO at Beamery. You have been doing this for a little while. I'm sure we'll hear a bit of your past history, but you're also thinking a lot about people strategy and talent strategy more broadly. I think that my my understanding is that's your specialist subject. So uh, we'll definitely get into that in more detail. Please do introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you came to be where you are now. Yeah, sure. So thanks for that. So yeah, my current role, like you said, I, I look after the people function and kind of central operations at Beamery. And I, I think we can talk about that in a few minutes, but largely my background didn't start in HR. So I was originally actually in finance and management information systems and doing a lot of stuff that was much more kind of analytical and quantitative. Given the opportunity at Unilever to become Unilever's first senior director of people analytics. And then so I kind of entered the HR function as a specialist, where most people would enter HR as a generalist, find a niche they like, and then go deep. I actually was brought in as a specialist and over time became more of a generalist in the function. And it was a great kind of wake up call and learning opportunity because when you're in a more traditional kind of analytical function where you're looking at numbers and data all day, you sometimes forget that there's actually a real life kind of human component to that. And so kind of making that transition, you know, should the numbers say we should close a factory, closing a factory actually means you're closing a community, a village, you're changing the family tree of people's children, you know, and when you start actually getting exposed to that, you start to appreciate the world's a lot bigger than your Excel spreadsheet. So yeah, so I really started getting into the people side of things and had the opportunity through Unilever to get a lot of great experience there. Joined various startups in different roles from people roles and COO roles worked internationally and uh, now, yeah, landed at Beamery, which is an HR tech company focused much more on engaging candidates and helping employers and companies, enterprise companies, uh, really personalize and hyper-personalize their interactions to attract and acquire and, and retain the best talent on the market to help deliver their missions. Awesome. Actually, because people may not have heard necessarily of Beamery, how would, where does it sort of uh, interact with the hiring process and where people might have come across it? Yeah, so it's targeted at large enterprise organizations primarily, uh, and it sits at the front of the recruiting funnel. So if you think of kind of your workflow from a recruiter or a talent acquisition perspective, it's front of your ATS or forward of your ATS. It does things like when you post a job, we can help get your career site up and manage your career site, link that through. Social media interactions, drive campaigns, create talent pools, events, so hackathons, meetups, whatever. 
track those. And really the proposition is that companies should really be investing in the communities and trying to build value effectively from a platform perspective to the talent market and not just go to that market when they want to extract value, i.e. hire people. So how can you have this constant engagement there and add value and interact and be consistent with your employer brand? And then when you do kind of pull people into your organization, how can you, as a large organization, hyper-personalize the interaction? And sometimes I describe it to people as... In your web browser, you're browsing and you decide you want to buy a new blue car or something like that. Next thing you know, every advertisement you see is a blue car. Or you look at the cinema's website, next thing you know, every advertisement is a cinema screening. They do that through cookies, right? It's almost like helping uh, large enterprises and potential prospects in that community to stay in touch by almost kind of placing cookies on trails where they interact with one another. So you're not starting fresh every time and you can actually develop a much more intimate kind of understanding of one another. Because as you know, it's a talent market. People are going to work where it's the best fit. So it's no longer just an employer and are you good enough to work here kind of thing. It's very much, are you good enough for me to spend my time at your organization? Absolutely. And I'm very keen to get into that subject a little bit more later. But anyone that has hired, probably even a, in a smaller company, will definitely recognize the pain of trying to hire engineers <laughs> and designers and all sorts of other hard to hire people. And you're throwing out in mails and you're desperately trying to work out how to get in front of people and you just look the same as everyone else. And yeah, it's about building that relationship over time. So it's differentiating and it's about creating value, even if you're not trying to extract it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Fantastic. So to set a little bit of context, what I mean, obviously Unilever is tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. You can tell me, <laughs> Beamery, what sort of team size are we looking at? Yeah, the team at the moment is just over 200 people globally. Okay, brilliant. So you've seen that scale up. How long have you been at, at Beamery? Uh, next week, it'll be two years. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. So your journey at Beamery, like, what's the last couple of years look like? One, I think anytime you join a growing company, an aggressively growing company, it's always an interesting trajectory. But then when you factor in things like COVID and the pandemic, it became a, a much more unpredictable trajectory. <laughs> mm. When I joined the company, we were just over 100 people. So we've not quite doubled in size, but near enough. We're on trajectory to triple in size over the next couple of years. We've had a lot of business growth over the past two years. So successive quarter on quarter um, record quarters for us in terms of business financials and, and customers. Customer referrals and our customer NPS is quite high right now. But to get there, we had to change mindsets. And when I first joined, we really had that symptom of when a company starts to grow and hit around 150 people, it's not unusual for those jobs that you had when the company was smaller, where you had one person with a job title that actually did 15 jobs kind of thing. Mm. When you kind of get to that 150 mark is when you need to say, hey, it's time to actually focus on something. So, you know, it's not unusual, for instance, in a growing company to have somebody doing sales, also doing contract management, but potentially even doing a little bit of coding or, you know, and I'm sure you find this, right? You know, hosting podcasts even. Yeah, right? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, but as you get larger, what you find is if you let somebody actually focus on the things that they're really good at and as founders and management team, you actually hire people who are better at doing those things that, that you're not great at doing or that, frankly, you might not have the interest in doing. Then it allows people to not only specialize, but you start to build the team and come together. And when I joined Beamery, that's the stage we were at. We were right at that stage of that inflection point between growing a business and getting ready to scale as a business. Right. And it yeah. was really, uh, 
uh, interesting. Yeah, some of the changes we had to make. That's really interesting from someone who's hiring, obviously at a smaller scale currently. But that switch from higher generalists, scrappy generalists, to higher specialists, which I think is broadly what you're yeah. describing. What are some of these stages where, as someone who's building a team, you need to start thinking in that way? If you Google and and whatnot, you'll find a lot of like quotes and management theory and <laughs> you know founders who write books and things. And people say things like, you know, hire when it hurts, right? Yeah. But quite often, if you're hiring when it hurts, you're too late, <laughs> okay? Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, the market today is like, how long does it take you to hire one of these people to identify the person? By the time you get them in, not only does it hurt, you're in surgery now. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's <laughs> right? So what you need to do is get really, really good at predicting and anticipating and reading signs. And it's kind of like in other domains where you see people won't really focus on the lagging indicators, the outcomes, they'll focus on the, the predictive and the leading indicators. You have to start to develop like an instinct for that. Mm-hmm. So if you see anything in the business, for instance, that somebody does more than once, even if you're only two or three people, if you've got a, an invoice template and you copy it and you refill in the same information for people, automate it right? Mm-hmm. Like anything like that, where it's a repeated task, that, that's a symptom, that's a sign, right? That's going to be a painful thing. Because if you get to the stage where you can't invest the few minutes or the time to automate something like that, then you're going to find that you're hiring people to do that manual work, mm-hmm. right? And the next thing you know, you have somebody whose job it is, is to copy and fill in invoices. One, we know that that's not really a fulfilling job for somebody, right? It's a task. Two, if it can be automated and the person can actually contribute value in another way, that actually means they could have, you know, going back to the whole line of business you're in, a career trajectory, growth prospects, right? Mm. And the way that I think you have to think about this is people always try to become efficient first, right? Mm. And my view is that actually that's, that's wrong, okay? There's certain circumstances where you'd want to do that, but generally speaking, I would say effectiveness first. If you can become effectiveness at it first, you know what it is, then you can actually refine it and iterate on it and become more efficient at doing it. If you're bad at doing something, you don't want people that are efficient creating a big pile of bad, right? You'd rather have things effective and no pile of bad, right? And you see this with like code refracturing and everything else, right? Yeah. And it's that tension you're always going to be in, in terms of quick versus right and correct. Yeah. And, you know, as, as a leader, you're going to have to find the balance on there. And at what point do you parallel run and bring in the big guns, the experts, the focus? That's it. We're hiring for marketing at the moment and hiring your early marketing team is really fascinating especially coming from a non-marketing background learning a lot but one of the um one of the big questions is how senior do you make that higher and how specialist do you make that higher right now we have a fairly strong sense of what we're going to need to do in the next year or two around that space but we may well be wrong and if we hire someone who's only good at that thing then that ends up yeah uh, especially someone senior who's going to actually drive the culture of their team in that wrong direction yeah. There's a few considerations you'd think about there. So one, for instance, would be the jobs that you find difficult today because you're not an expert in that domain, admittedly, right? Mm. The other person actually might think is a walk in the park, right? So you may actually be going into it with a bit of a bias in that oh, this is a hard job, but not for a professional, right? It could be nothing to them. Secondly, when you start looking at questions of seniority, a lot of people start thinking, oh, if we hire somebody too big, they're going to create a whole infrastructure around themselves or, you know, and all these scenarios play out. What I find is if you think about how senior does the person need to be or what kind of skill sets and attributes do they need to have Mm. to build your business's marketing system, if they can design the system that they need, then 
you start looking at, can the person run that system or do they need to hire people to run the system, right? In an ideal world, your first senior hires are people that can actually build a system that you will be able to trust, right? You don't necessarily, like this is again, it's a mindset shift. When you're small and you're you know, 30 people, you know everybody, you trust everybody, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't, you pull them aside, you have a chat in a room or you go for a beer and change the context, right? Get it out of your system. Yeah. As you grow bigger, and on top of this, with remote and things, you have to learn to trust the system will work. And if the system doesn't work, you trust the person to fix it. Right. Right? So what you need, because you're hiring your first marketing, kind of like true marketing resource, and as a function, you need to think about who can design the system that we can trust. And if the system isn't working, can we trust the individual to then fix it? Right. Right? Right. And that usually gives you a gauge on the level of seniority you need so just think about how you would interview that person differently now with that mindset, you know? Genuinely useful for me right now, Steve. So thank you. I, <laughs> I don't know how useful it would be for anyone listening, but for me right now, it's very... It is, but, but just think about it. Like, as a founder, what would you need to see to know the system works without speaking to the person? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's... that's All right. And then it changes the way you think about it. Yeah. Really, really useful. So, but what you're describing here is sort of predicting the future. I think that that's a really interesting thing to be thinking about in terms of you're basically mapping unknown unknowns. You're, I don't know what we'll need in 12 months time and there's no way I can know. So I need the best possible informed gut around what other teams have felt. That's where I look for advice from another CEO that's maybe a, a year or two ahead of me. Yeah, who's been there? Who's done that? What patterns do you see? Who recognizes those? And when you hire in your own senior staff, it's the same thing, right? I would expect uh, a senior hire, for instance, within that first kind of three months phase, like when you hire somebody, you're going to have these assumptions. You're going to predict what you need. Yeah. You're going to hire this person. They're going to come in. They're going to validate the starting point, right? At some point within that first 90 days, a good person is actually going to tell you, hey, you thought you needed this. This is actually what we need. And it's we now because they're on board. And this is what I need to make it happen, right? And pretty soon you're going to see the agency there because they will course correct you because they've been in that spot before. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And otherwise you end up in a micromanaging unscalable situation. Yeah. And you'll worry and your hair will turn gray and fall out. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So really interesting. So I want to just back to your time at Beamery fairly recently, you also took on the title of COO. I've seen there's a bit of a trend here. Jesse from Whereby became COO having been in a people role or people and talent role. What's happening here? Like it feels like it sort of makes sense. But yeah, what are you seeing? So I think there's a couple of different things in play. So yeah, like Jessica Hayes, like you said at Whereby, Ashley Otter at Perlego, she does people and operations as well. And, And increasingly so. And people are getting to it through different kind of routes. But if we break it down a little bit and then we factor in other circumstances. So if you take a traditional COO role, for instance, okay, usually, you know, how to define those things, right? Usually a COO role is highly dependent on the type of CEO one would work with, okay? Because it's supposed to be a complementary role. So if you have an external facing kind of really face of the brand type of extroverted CEO, then quite often the COO is more introverted and a managing director type person. Sometimes if the uh, CEO or the founder is more of a, you know, wants to be the lead product Mm -hmm. person, for instance, you have someone else who's kind of more the face of the business and the, you know, more of a CRO Mm -hmm. type COO. Okay. 
So it traditionally it's been kind of uh, dynamic, right? But ultimately you had these roles where people were responsible for kind of the day-to-day administration and the operational functions of the business. And if you think of the profile of those people, pretty much regardless of which way they came into it, you had strong analytical skills, strong communication skills, managerial leadership kind of skills. And it was that mix, regardless of the domain. Then you look at what is the role of a chief people officer or a CHRO, okay? And traditionally, that's largely been around relationships and things. But if you go back, what, about 15 years or so, when people analytics was starting to Mm. come into play, people were realizing that the HR function at large, similar to marketing or finance, is starting to develop a science. Okay, so if you think of, you know, marketing, because we were just speaking about it, you had advertising and promotion. All of a sudden, there's social media. And I've got data coming out of every faucet, you know, and kind of jumping at me. And I've got Twitter and I've got Facebook and I've got cookies and I've got all this stuff, right? To manage that data, you have to put a good data management kind of layer in place. Data management leads to information management. Information management leads to management information, which leads to data science, right? So what is the science of advertising and promotion and consumer market insight and all that stuff? Marketing. That's what we call it now, right? Finance, same thing. You had bookkeeping. You had accounting. Now you've got predictive analytics. You have real-time numbers coming in. You have translating from monthly active users and how does that translate and, you know, all that stuff. So there's a science there, right? And the science is finance. There's a guy named uh, John Boudreau out in California. He's written several books on this topic. HR is kind of in that place right now where we saw consolidation a few years ago where you had companies like Oracle purchasing PeopleSoft and SAP buying up the market. And they were consolidating functional modules and basically saying, hey, this is best practice. And, you know, not to rain on anyone's parade, but, you know, when you have best practice in the cloud, it actually means the lowest <laughs> common denominator, right? Because you can't customize for any one uh, thing. It has to work for everybody. But uh, anyway, it was good practice, harmonized, and it was basically prepackaged processes. But now that meant that teams could get access to the underpinning mm-hmm. data. That meant that the chief people officers and CHROs started to become much more business leaders rather than just looking after one asset of people. And that's evolved more recently, I would say, where if I articulate my mandate, and I think, you know, Jessica and and Ashley uh, would probably do similar, they would, and you said, what is the one line thing that a CHRO does in your business? It's something along the lines of making sure that the business has the capability it needs to Mm -hmm. deliver the mission, right? And what is capability? Yeah, it's people and it's skills and experience and competencies and all that. It's probably also process, data, Mm. tooling, right? And if you think about that, who in an organization today would say and take the decision on, is it okay for an employee to work from Starbucks or from the office or from home? It's no longer just an information security decision and a CIO decision. It's why would somebody choose to work from Starbucks rather than the office? Why is our office not the right environment for people to be at their most productive? right? And these worlds are starting to come together. So what that means is the new CHRO or chief people officer really is solving business problems through people. Whereas before it was much more around solving people problems through traditional approaches to HR. Yeah. Right. Huge difference. And when you start thinking that way and you start to appreciate that, you know, if people say, how do I go about doing my job? I consider myself to be the product owner of my company, right? And there's two facets to that. You have the more traditional piece of the company, which is how hard is it for people to work here? Is it easy? 
Is it difficult to be a manager? Do customers need to understand my org chart in order to mm-hmm. do business with me? You know, all this stuff. But then you've got the other side. So if you take the word company, it literally is a group of people coming together. There's a social aspect to that. That's where all the people, the culture piece comes in. You have a group of people that have chosen to be committed to a common purpose or mission or vision, and they're using their skills and experience to contribute to make an impact on that front. And when those two worlds come together, you have this operational piece and you have that kind of people leadership piece. And it makes absolute sense that you start to see organizations that truly are kind of people centric and and capability centric to combine the role of a chief operating officer with a chief people officer. I think I honestly, in my heart, believe that this is the future. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes complete sense in a modern company, especially in a company that's building technology where so few people have such high leverage over the quality of the ultimate outcome that if you have if you have that data set and you are looking at that resource i suppose already to resource is a horrible word to use for people but if you're looking at it from that lens then you are probably the highest leverage person to control sort of the operations of the business it makes absolutely complete sense what's so exciting about it i think from my point of view is historically it feels like and Apologies if I offend you or <laughs> anything like that, but HR may be seen as a bit of a cost center, a supporting role, maybe not really central critical path role in the past. And actually, as you sort of rise up the organization in terms of influence, then what does that then look like in terms of what you hand off in terms of those sort of more granular responsibilities and devolve to teams as well? I think that's really interesting too. Do you have any thoughts around what the role is of the centralized people org versus the role of managers, basically? Yeah. So my view very much is that if you take a, you know, I'll just use a traditional job title. So like an HR business partner, for instance, or a people partner, as sometimes they've been called, or a talent partner, whatever it is, right? My view is that those roles really are around capability management as an extension of that chief people officer type mandate, right? So they work with leaders directly to make sure that the leaders have the capabilities in their teams to deliver whatever their team is designed and intended to do, okay? In addition to that, they work to make sure that the team is high performing. So again, this is an effective team and are they doing the right things? And they have to do that through that lens of organizational health and culture and thinking of, again, like a product and doing all that. And ultimately, you use like, you know, cost center or central function or whatever. The way that I actually see it now, and you know, people might not look at the phrasing of this either, but it's almost what you're doing is by putting those resources there, you're increasing the probability that that team will be successful and therefore the company will be successful. It's almost like an assurance policy, right? And I say assurance because I'm trying to be optimistic on the outcome as opposed to insurance. <laughs> so assurance, right? But by putting that kind of role in place, what you're doing is you're helping a manager who is already burdened by delivery management and line responsibilities and potentially budgets and everything else. And what you're doing is you're being a trusted partner to them to really make an organization that works well. Separate from that, you've kind of got an operational lens in a people team. So like you hear people ops, for instance, right? Made famous by what, Laszlo Bach and, and Google, right? People ops. That to me is more kind of the machine that looks after the effectiveness of delivery and execution of HR programs and products and, you know, people products, things like that. Performance management, for instance, or, you know, whatever it is, internal mobility, uh, hiring. And if you, again, you want to put like a marketing lens or a product lens on that, 
It's the effectiveness and the efficiency, but it's also the richness of the service they provide, right? How great can they make that experience? How can they differentiate? How can they make it super easy to get work done without going through like 20 loads of paperwork or whatever? Like you don't want to, um, <laughs> my son has recently started watching reruns of MASH because it's on Apple TV. And there's one there where the clerk has to fill in the form to get the forms to fill in the form for the thing that they're trying to order, right? And, and they talk about bureaucracy, right? So you don't want to have a function like that where you have to fill in a form to get the form, right? So it's richness. You'd look at the reach. How many people can you service with that same offering? And then what overall is your catalog of products and services that you want to manage for the employees? And if you do that with a mindset of ultimately the way you want to measure that is you want happy customers, right? And you get happy customers by using every interaction to provide evidence that you're delivering your employer value proposition to those people. It means one, people recognize it in the moment. Two, when it spikes and you've had an opportunity to provide really excellent service or people are happy, you can then translate that into an external proposition. So one of the things we always tell our people ops team to mitigate that risk that they feel like they're a back office is everything they do, all communications that they design, every interaction, assume that we're going to post it or share it publicly mm -hmm. because I would love to share all that publicly, right? So even if it's an internal, I don't know, how to do something, I'm going to make a quick loom video, assume you're talking to an external audience because if a customer or colleague in another company has that same issue, I'd love just to post your video on YouTube and just say, yeah, we got a little video on there. Go nuts. Mm. Jessica was a, a previous guest on the podcast and we talked a lot about how by running the people function, you're sort of building the product that builds the product. And in product circles, we talk a lot about user needs and thinking about the end user and making sure that we're building something that people want and all of that kind of stuff. And I feel like that's also a reflection of the evolution of this craft, if you like, in that it becomes more user focused and it becomes more about the point of need rather than, or maybe alongside reporting data back to the organization. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. And right now, I mean, you, prime example, let's take this whole return to the office or not debates that are happening all over the world right now. Where are we? So from a, more and more organizations are taking a much more kind of this user-centric approach or product approach. They're saying, we can't force people to come back to the office. I can't force you to take medicine that tastes bad because someone else has better <laughs> tasting medicine, you know, whatever you want to, however you want to refer to it. What's the challenge now? It's to create workplaces that have a value proposition that's better than the alternative, right? Ultimately, if you really boil it down, it's opportunity cost. If you want an employee to come in the office because whatever you're trying to achieve is office-based stuff, you need to make that office the best place in the world for them to be to achieve whatever that thing is, mm. right? It's got to be better than home. It's got to be better than Starbucks. You know, it's got to be better than the next company that offers something else. And what organizations are just learning now is that this actually, you know, all these kind of resignations and people switching companies, it's not actually just about comp. People aren't changing for comp. They're changing for lifestyle. They're changing for value mm. proposition, right? Workplace is right now in real life becoming a product and it's becoming something that organizations need to compete on now for talent. Yeah. My workplace has to compete for effectively your enthusiasm to show up at my office if that's my business model. Absolutely. Yeah. As an employee, I am now sitting at the same desk and I could work for 10 different companies. And one thing that we talk about internally is, well, if I could work for 10 different companies from the same desk, I don't care about your pool table and your snacks. Like, tell me what's in this for me. What differentiates you from the next company down the street? And maybe some of that is comp, 
but a lot of it is the story I can tell and the quality of the work and, and all of the other things as well. Yeah. And if you think about that, and then now let's put on your, okay, you're now the COO or, or CHRO combined role of your organization. And you start thinking about that. And like you said, it's not just about comp and the mechanical side of things. It's also, remember I said company now has kind of got more than one lens. You've got company, the infrastructure, so the comp and the value prop and all that. But then you've got company, the social. Sitting at home at your desk, you aren't physically surrounded by colleagues that you feel that you've got something akin to. Now, good organizations that, that are remote are going to find a way to offer that experience yeah. virtually. Those that don't are going mm -hmm. to lose out, right? So if we look at GitLab and others, they've cracked that uh, automatic. They've cracked that, right? Other companies now that traditionally haven't had that, and the only reason why they're hybrid or remote now is because they've surrendered their yeah. leases during COVID to save money. Yeah. What are they going to do? I can't swing by your desk right now and steal the jelly beans, you know what I mean? Like, or cookies, whatever you got there, snacks, right? It doesn't work. You got to find, you got to be creative. You got to find other ways to do that. Absolutely. And the GitLabs of this world that have been doing remote for a long time have probably been capturing the early adopter remote people. Like people looked for remote and went to GitHub. Whereas now we're sort of in the middle market where uh, people yeah. are maybe a bit less fussed about remote and they're looking at different options, but they're not hardcore remote people. So they have to be persuaded more that remote is actually okay. And it's around the drivers, right? So, mm. you know, if you take like a GitLab or, you know, those type of examples, largely open source software, hardware design, right? That, that's largely been distributed models since the dawn of time, basically, right? So way back, I mean, Linus Travalis and Linux and all that, it was completely distributed, right? So they've got a lot of heritage in that way of working, okay? They have a different problem and challenge, which has been addressed more recently. They have challenges such that you and I may have worked together for 10 years through a flashing cursor and never actually met each other, you know, yet we feel like we have. And then the first time we actually meet each other yeah. is really awkward, right? It's far easier to establish a relationship in person and maintain it remotely than it is the other way around. Yeah. Right. With Zoom and video and things, yes, a lot of open source software companies are using that now, but what do they do? They're dismissing the video window because they need to see what they're working on, right? Which actually means a lot of them still revert to headless or no camera and they just use audio and, and text. If you kind of translate that into other organizations, take Zoom, which had phenomenal growth for this period, right? It's all about the video, but a lot of people aren't having the video open and collaborating in a document at the same time. It's a meeting. Then when you stop the meeting, you got to find time to do your work. And we see this where people are saying, hey, now that I'm not commuting, I'm working an extra hour in the morning yeah. and an extra hour in the day because I don't have time to do my work because I'm on Zoom all day. So it's just a completely different pattern. <laughs> yeah, fascinating. Yeah. I'd love to switch it up. And you've already sort of talked about coming from a more of a systems background, I suppose, and thinking about data flows and, and all of this stuff. And clearly, like that's sort of how your brain works. So I'd love to hear... <laughs> a little bit of your game theory about where this all ends up in terms of capability mapping within organizations, both on your macro lens, like from the top, but also, you know, how people think about what's going to be important in terms of skills, titles, capabilities, and all of that kind of stuff. That's a very broad question, I know. <laughs> <laughs> if I think to a place where, I don't know, maybe a, a, a biased place where I'd like the world to go. Let's start there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's start there. Okay. Um, I think what we'll find is that there's some positive that's going to come out of this kind of remote and hybrid working in that I don't care what you're wearing today, right? I might not even see what you're wearing today. 
it doesn't matter to me your quirks and nuances. And what, what I mean by that is we're reducing the, the amounts of input that we have and we're focusing on the fact that we need to work together to get something done or engage or whatever. I think that's going to eliminate a lot of the bias that we see happening in organizations, you know, just traditional bias mm. and stuff like that, which means that we start to focus on how can we contribute and work together and help one another, which means we start to focus on what skills do you have? Mm. What experience do you have? What skills do I have? What experience do I have? And how can we collaborate to get the thing done? I believe that if we can ultimately start to move models of talent much more to be skills-based, it will actually, as a side consequence, start to address things like bias in that. Because I'm not asking where you got those skills or how you got those skills. I just want to know if you have them and if you can help. Yeah. Right? It doesn't matter if you went to you know Harvard or some other school. The, the fact is you can help. Right? And if it becomes a much more root and fundamental kind of contribution on skills-based, and if you kind of buy into that thinking... Not only will kind of hiring practices and things change over organizations because it becomes more practical, you also start getting into a world where people's roles can be much, much more uh, networked based as opposed to defined kind of by a silo or a trajectory or a box or you know, mm. whatever description one is. So for instance, you might be you know, a product designer, but you might also have experience in something else, right? If there's a piece of work, as long as you have line of sight of that piece of work, and I say, hey, I need somebody who knows how to do this, you might say, oh, yeah, I used to do that as a hobby. Or I used to work, like, so for instance, you know, I used to work in IT, right? I can code. Mm. Do you think I've ever been asked if I can code for any of the jobs I've had? <laughs> Never, not once, right? But, you know, I can write my own scripts and things like that if I need to, to help make things a little more efficient or shortcuts or, you know, not going to write depth stuff. But if somebody was ever stuck, let's say, trying to process something or whatever, there's a chance that I've got a skill that I can help them with. Mm. And if you start doing that and start creating bigger nuggets of opportunity to help and contribute and have impact rather than just you know, helping out a friend, you start to develop almost internally to organizations a portfolio-based career based on the skills that you have, the experience you have, or the skills that you want to develop and the experience mm. you want to gain, right? And if I'm working on something and I can take that enthusiastic novice, okay, so you want to learn the skills, but you really can't help me today. But if I've got enough slack in my delivery process, yeah, it's a learning opportunity, right? If I don't have that luxury of time and everything else, then I'm going to be looking for somebody who's got the skills who can contribute much more transactionally. And then people like, you know, who have my role in organizations need to find that social balance what is the balance between delivering that proposition that people can advance and grow and learn through touching many, many different things and getting involved versus the delivery management side, which is much more the Wall Street 1980s, just transactional output, mm. output, 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 you know, the consequence doesn't matter kind of thing, right? And, and where's the balance between effectiveness, efficiency, delivery, and delivering your EVP, creating value and sparking new ideas? Because that's the key thing where I think this will lead. Having you help me on something that is out of your domain, but you've touched or you've got exposure to means you're going to bring new perspectives, mm. right? And that is the very definition of kind of diversity in the workplace, right? Diversity of skills, experience, background, perspectives, et cetera, is what we want. But what we're not doing is the thing that actually is a threat to organizations when it comes to diversity. And that's diversity of mission, mm. right? If you don't diversify your mission, but you diversify all the perspectives and inputs, you can create magic. If you find that you're diversifying your mission, then it's a conversation around a pivot or spin-off. Right, yeah. Or just lack of focus that leads to people enthusiastically going in 10 directions. <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah. 
right? And then we're in a nice world, right? Yeah, you know? absolutely. I love that utopia. There's, and, and broadly agree with it as a utopia, whether we can get there or not. I suppose one thing that, to play a little bit of devil's advocate, between now and this utopian vision, you start to be able to think about things like, how do I deploy the right team onto the right project based on the skills that we need? And actually, do I need to make a hire or is there someone hidden somewhere in the organization that can already do this? Massive efficiency gains, all of that kind of stuff. It starts to look a little bit like management by AI or some sort of like force from above sort of dictating, you know. Well, it's, it's pattern recognition, right? Yeah. So I suppose the question I have, and I mean, this is this has just come to me, so, you know, riffing. But how do you square that with people feeling like they're not being, not just sort of cogs in a in a big system and sort of being told where to deploy themselves next, you know? Because the one thing the machine learning and the AI and all the pattern recognition in the world can't do is understand your motivation, mm. right? It can simulate it, it can guess, it can use, you know, Bayesian statistics and Bayesian theory to extrapolate and gain confidence on it, but it will never know, right? So you can't read into a situation. You have to have the tact. You have to have the diplomacy. So I'll give you uh, kind of a, an adjacent example, but this is one that I use to help explain HR systems and people operations kind of focus and things. Imagine you have some kind of like employee help desk, okay? And you're the people operations person there, and you have walk-in hours for employees to come in with any issues they might have. Young lady walks into you and you say, good morning. And Morning, Johnny. How can I help you? Right. I just found out I'm pregnant. Okay. You have to know, like, how to read the, that situation. Is she happy? Is she sad? Is she scared? Is she freaking out? Has she told anybody? You can't just assume and say, oh, congratulations. Mm. Right. You don't know how to behave just yet. So if that was the data point and your machine learning or AI just had that information, right? You don't want to trigger things. And we see this through other kind of uh, logic. You don't want to trigger a process and then cause uh, so logic and emotion don't always go hand in hand. And when they're out of sync, that's when you have disasters. You'll see this now greeting card companies and gift companies will send a message before Mother's Day and just say, hey, do you want to still receive Mother's Day notifications? Because if you recently lost a loved one, you know, whatever it is, that might upset people. So they've now kind of started wising up to it, but they don't know. And the machine doesn't know. A manager will have a relationship with an employee. They will understand your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations, your vision, why you stay with this company, especially if you're here because you believe in something and you're taking less compensation, especially if you're here because that you feel that this is the best place for you to be in the world to get that thing done, right? Or if you love working with your colleagues, mm. you know, the machine's not going to know that, right? Absolutely. It's like a dating app, right? You can swipe through dating apps, find somebody, go on a date, and it can be horrible or... You know, they might get lucky, but more often than not, they're not the right person, which keeps you in the app hoping for the next one. Yeah. Right. They actually bank on the fact that you're not going to find the right match the first time. Otherwise, you know, you're not a user anymore. Absolutely. I think this gets back to the, I agree, there needs to be a point where technology stops and humans start or vice versa. And I think this gets back to a little bit of the role of the people organization centrally as guardians of a data set that is useful and the role of a manager or the direct relationship that someone has with their report where they can sort of run that through their filter and be like, yeah, but I'm not going to actually do that because I know that this person would, would not be happy or 
but it's understanding that that needs to be a core part of the proposition of the role. Right. Right. So for instance, some of the best hires that I have ever made in my career for these people opt roles. So the person who's at that help desk and somebody walks in, mm. they're people that have worked in hotels as concierges, right? Not front desk at hotels, concierge. Why? Because one, they can very quickly read a situation to figure out where their person's at. Are they happy? Are they sad? Do they need something? Do they not need something? Is it just for information? Do I need to take action? Two, they're business savvy. They've been trained. A concierge is not going to comp somebody a limo to the airport unless they need a limo at the airport for a pickup, mm-hmm. right? They would rather send somebody, anybody in it so that it's not empty, right? Rather than sending an empty car one way. They understand that, oh, if you've had a rough night, we're going to offer you room service, breakfast in bed the next morning. What happens? They just send somebody to the buffet. They pick a few items, put it on a tray. They bring it up to your room you feel like you got special treatment. It was actually cheaper for them because statistics show that if you go to the buffet, odds are you're going to have more than what was given to you, right? Right. Because people (laughs) tend to go up more than once and they have to send the cleaning staff there anyway. So it makes no material difference to them. But a concierge understands the human element and how to run smooth operations and margins management, you see? And so when I start thinking of those roles, I'm not necessarily looking just for that traditional background. Mm. I'm looking for adjacent skills right? And then I'm saying now, your customer, I want you to delight the employee, right? I want them to know and feel valued and understand that we do value them, which is why I invested in you to make sure that they know that, right? It's this concept of provide evidence of your EVP that we spoke about before. Yeah. Now I'm actually doing what I say that we believe in. Yeah. It goes back to Beamery's mission. I don't know exactly what Beamery's mission is, but from sort of reading from the outside, and this whole sort of, it's an employee market. The hand is also being forced. Like there's no way that you can build a best in class company without caring about this. It is so central to yep. to getting it right. Yeah. I mean, Beamery, just for your audience, <laughs> treat candidates like customers. Okay. From a people ops and, and an internal point of view, it's treat employees like customers, hmm. right? But on a more general front, any company today that thinks they're going to get away with having values and things that aren't truly authentic and meaningful, you're going to get exposed just a matter of time, mm. right? If you don't believe in what you say, it could be anything from a glass door review to, you know, a, a WeWork or Uber level scandal, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, but it will happen, right? People need to start being real and authentic. And if your goal is just revenue as a business leader of your company, then just tell people that and you will attract people that want to achieve a revenue target. Yeah. If your goal is to have a business that feels more like a clubhouse, then tell people that. And that's the kind of people you will attract, mm. right? But don't fake it because you don't want clubhouse people focused on a revenue yeah. uh, target. Yeah. You know? I have to say, I don't know how many um, startup founders are self-aware enough to even know what they actually want, but <laughs> that's probably a conversation for a different time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, let's reverse it. Let's let you, let you answer one for your audience. How about that? <laughs> Are you asking me one? Yeah. Okay. All right. Go on just, just to mirror, because I mean, I think by virtue of your role, you've come into contact with a lot of different organizations that think very differently around skills and their people and progression. And mm. you used an interesting word when we spoke. A lot of people talk about growing careers. You occasionally say scale careers. Mm. Right. I don't know if you do this deliberately or not, but clearly there's something, whether it's subconscious or conscious in your mind that differentiates a career progression as a growth model 
versus scaling careers. I think it'd be useful just to understand like, you know, when I say that, what direction does your mind go in? Because it's probably influenced by the vast number of leaders that you speak to. Yeah, I think um, growing careers is using that language is probably when I think about employees. I grow my career. It's quite personal. I wouldn't ever say I'm scaling my own career necessarily. I grow a career, whereas I scale a career's capability, I suppose. So when an organization is trying to work out how to build a better muscle around supporting multiple careers of multiple people over a long period of time, that's sort of what then scaling careers has probably a slightly different sentence structure. I think that historically companies haven't really had to worry about it very much because as you say, I'm happy to get a job and I'll happily sit here. And then I might change when a recruiter turns up and offers me a salary bump somewhere else. And that would be my uh, being led by externalities in terms of what my career looks like. And we talk internally about career design and what is it like to design the careers of your organization the careers of your direct reports or your own career. And it's all about intentionality. So like that's, I think scaling as an organization is recognizing that it's very high leverage to support the careers of the people that you really value and then doing something about it, basically. I think it makes perfect sense. What I would challenge you to do as both a customer and a leader that would love to see you and, and your team also start to define how we get to that utopia is if an employee were to go through the exact process you said and go from growing careers and whatnot in a company that scales, how do they get to that place one day where scaling your career means you've got skills that can be deployed on various things outside of your box, right? You know, And it might be worth keeping in the back of your mind, but one day I'd love to read your white paper. On it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're on the cover of Forbes and, and whatnot. Well, we'll see. I mean, yeah, a white paper, maybe... Um... Maybe next year. <laughs> maybe, maybe. But, you know, if, if anybody's going to connect the dots, I, I'm optimistic that it'll be you and your team, Johnny. Thank you, Steve. That's very kind of you. Um, let's wrap there. So where can we find you online? Where should people go? The best place right now is LinkedIn, because I tend to do all my kind of professional related things there. If you do happen to come across me on Twitter and that, it's usually just me complaining to various companies' customer support team. <laughs> <laughs> That's good content. Exactly. I'm right. in for it. Yeah. So LinkedIn. And then the next few weeks, I'll be doing much more on uh, places like YouTube and other uh, more video-based things. So we're in the process of getting that stuff sorted. So That'd be awesome. I can't wait. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. I'll let you know when that's live. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. 